G'day, I'm listener Charlie from Down Under in Sydney, Australia. This is Better Place Project with my mate Steve Norris. Make the world a better place. Make the world. Hey, hey, welcome to Season 2, Episode 21. Special thanks to Better Place Project listener Charlie from Sydney, Australia for this episode's introduction. Thanks, Charlie. If you'd like to introduce a future episode, just record yourself. You can even do it on your phone if you want, saying, Hi, this is listener, insert your name here, from insert your city, state, or country here, and something like, You're listening to Better Place Project and send it to us via email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com, and you might just be featured on an upcoming episode. Woohoo! All right, a quick update on the Paul Recessa story. Paul is the real-life hero that the Academy Award-winning film Hotel Rwanda was about, starring Don Cheadle. Well, if you had not heard, Rusesa Begina was kidnapped by the Rwandan government as he has been an outspoken critic of the president of Rwanda for his countless human rights violations. He's been in prison in Rwanda and is undergoing a sham trial. Finally, it's now starting to get worldwide media as ABC News just ran a big story on it this past Sunday. To learn more about how you can help free Paul Rusesa Begina, please go to hrrfoundation.com. To hear the details of this story, you can check out our March 2nd, 2021 episode where we had his two incredibly brave daughters, Anais and Corinne, on the show to talk about what happened and the horror that their family has been going through. And lastly, before we get started, we've chosen to have very little advertising during the first two seasons of the show, and we've also chosen to not, up to this point, ask for any donations. But we would like to ask you if you've enjoyed the show, is to please share any episodes you like with your friends and family, and please leave us a rating and a quick written review. Even two sentences saying, this isn't the worst podcast ever, or Steve and Aaron actually don't suck. That would be awesome because that is what helps get our show in front of a wider audience. So thank you so much in advance for that. And now you all are in for a huge treat today. Aaron, tell us about our guest this week. Terrence Lester is a speaker, activist, author, and thought leader in the realm of systemic poverty. He's known for nationwide campaigns that have been featured on MLK 50, CNN, Good Morning America, and more. In 2013, Terrence founded the nonprofit Love Beyond Walls and has helped hundreds of individuals experiencing homelessness and poverty to rebuild their lives. In 2019, Terrence launched the first museum in the U.S. representing homelessness out of a shipping container called Dignity Museum. He also holds four degrees and hosts a podcast called Narrative Shift. Terrence has written six books, and his new book, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together, is set to release on May 18th. If your faith in mankind has been diminished in any way over the last few years, listen to this interview. You'll be reminded that there is overwhelming goodness in this world, and you will be inspired to be a part of that goodness. I know I was. Yes, I was too. And if you haven't heard of Terrence Lester and his work yet, I think you'll be blown away by this episode. His foundation, Love Beyond Walls, has come up with just some game-changing ideas to help people experiencing homelessness. I've pre-ordered his book, which I'm super excited to read. It's called When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together, and it comes out on May 18th. 
And now, our conversation with Terrence Lester. Welcome to the show, Terrence. How are we doing? I am doing well, Steve and Aaron. I'm excited to be here uh, with you guys today. Yeah, thanks for being here. We're super excited, too. Aaron especially, Terrence. Aaron came to me a couple months back and said, hey, I've got this Terrence Lester guy. You have to check this guy out, right? So so I go and uh, she sends me a bunch of links and she's so excited about it. And uh, I go and check out some links and I'm seeing, oh my gosh, this guy is doing these amazing things with Love Beyond Walls. He's got four books out. He's in a Coca-Cola commercial. He's going for his PhD. And I'm like, I don't want this guy on. He's given me an inferiority complex uh, already. And then, so check this out. So so we did all our research. And then last night, I'm prepping again for the, for the show. And I go and I check out on your, I look out on your Twitter account and I see he has another book coming out May 18th, which by the way, is When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. So you're killing me here. I think Erin wanted to have you on the show so she could tell her dad how underperforming and underachieving he's doing. So anyway, (laughs) it's great to have you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you all for the warm introduction. Yeah, so if we could, one of the things I always like to do before we start talking about all the amazing work that you're doing right now is I'm always curious about a person's childhood. It helps give us, give me insight as to what, drives a person. So can you tell us about your childhood and how that shaped you as an adult? Yeah. Yeah. Today I would love to lift up my grandmother. Her name is uh, Jessica Lesser. And uh, I remember as early as seven, eight years old, her uh, taking me to the historic Wheat Street Baptist Church and sitting in the pews with, with me and talking to me about the choir, which was a, a pretty robust-sized choir, and pointing at the preacher, who in my seven- or eight-year-old mind was yelling at everybody. And, <laughs> you know, I remember things like the, the pews that had these really brass, like, name tags at the end of them. I remember uh, the carpet and with this like 70s or 80s vibe. I remember the stained glass windows, but I also remember my grandmother walking me around the church, telling all of her friends that one day I would be in ministry or that I would uh, make a difference for God in the world. And at that moment in my life, I had no clue as to what she was talking about. I just wanted to go to church with my grandmother because I loved to really Uh, a lot. And uh, later in life, um, I had no clue that I would go through a lot of different experiences, pretty hard experiences, like running away from home, sleeping in parks. And there was a time when I had joined gangs, trying to find community and search for my identity and had little, little clues as to how that was like all working together to shape me and, and mold me into the person that I was becoming. I had a, um, a childhood friend. Uh, he's still my friend today. I've talked about him a lot, and I even mentioned him in my book, When We Stand. But his name is Eric, and he had a father who was a pastor who pastored a church that was predominantly made up of people experiencing homelessness. 
And so I was pretty close to this family when I was about 17 years old. Sometimes I would go to church with them and I would sit in the church and the church would literally feed meals to people who would come and gather. Uh, Mr. Moore also had transitional houses. And he was one of the guys that I first like really saw love his family, you know? He was there for his mm -hmm. kids. Uh, he was a guy that I felt very comfortable with when I, he was probably the first guy that I could ever look in his eyes and, and uh, with trust, like full trust, right? And Mr. Moore uh, became my mentor. He, he knew of all of my circumstances and everything that I was going through, but he would always call me a leader and I could never figure out why. Uh, but he saw something in me <laughs> and uh, became a mentor, encouraged me to finish high school, to put myself through college. He was a person that I called uh, and I asked him, should I marry her, right? He was a guy that pushed me over the edge to, uh, you know, get engaged with my wife. Uh, he was a guy that told me that the pain that I experienced throughout my teenage years would somehow be used in a way to relate to people and also to bring people hope in the world. And so I remember going to him, just telling him that I thought I wanted to start an organization or, you know, enter into ministry and he would always encourage it. And he was probably the reason why I started Love Beyond Walls. But within the first year, uh, Mr. Moore passed away the first year I started the organization. And yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there, man, and uh, pass it back to you. But Wow. A large part of the work that I do is deeply inspired by by him. Wow. Sounds like an amazing influence in your in your life and your grandmother as well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. You had said in one of your speeches, which which by the way, clearly that uh, preacher that you thought was kind of <laughs> shouting at you had an influence because <laughs> wow, when you preach, you are full of uh, energy, which is incredible. You had said that something that kind of struck a chord with me, that commitment is born out of survival. Yes. Can you talk about the difference between interest and commitment and the power of commitment leading to innovation? Yeah, that speech, I was, I think I was giving a talk at Creative Mornings and the theme was centered around commitment and when I first heard that that word, the first thing that I went back to is all of the challenges and the struggles that I saw my mom go through working two and three jobs, you know, taking care of myself and my sister while going to school, completing a couple of uh, graduate degrees to, to better position herself. I saw her resilience. I saw you know, even within the context of my own struggle and searching for identity and having to come overcome a lot of the, the issues that I was facing stemming from my own uh, social location and family context. And I also saw like this, this unyielding commitment to never giving up, like, you know, just holding on to this idea of hope that something better is coming. And that's what I mean when I say commitment is born out of survival. Like there are some people in the world that are surviving and because they know that they have to wake up and survive and they don't have, you know, an excessive amount of resources or an excessive amount of anything. 
that they're committed to the fact that they have to get up and survive every day. And I think people who are in a place where they're married to this, this idea of never giving up, even if they're surviving or so, so thriving, right? That they have a deep connection to the thing that they're committed to. And uh, they realize within the context of whatever they're going through that no matter what, they're not giving up. And if they do give up, then everything collapses, right? That's what I'm talking about. And people who are just interested, you know, I mean, I was interested in tennis, uh, but I don't need tennis to survive, right? Sure, absolutely. I, you know, I could I could play a couple of games, and you know, I'm interested, in it, but it, I'm not performing or playing this game that which dictates if I will be able to make it <laughs> in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I have interest in basketball. I used to pay, play basketball, but I don't wake up every single day excited about playing basketball. And I think people who are interested in things you know, they kind of flirt with it. And I I, I use um, this idea of dating to talk about vision. When you like your vision, you know, you're flirting with your vision. You may ask your vision uh, if you want, if it wants to go out (laughs) and you start to like court court your vision a (laughs) little bit, Court your vision, exactly. Yeah, yeah, court court your vision uh, or the- Swipe right on your vision. Swipe right on your vision, right? (laughs) And then- and then you move into like, oh, I really like this vision. And you get a little more committed, right? Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you know, build a deeper affinity towards the vision. <laughs> and then you get, you move into a phase where you're really serious and you're like, I want to marry the vision. That's what I'm talking about, where when you're committed to something, you are married to it. That when you wake up every single day, there's no separation from of it from you Um, powerful yeah very cool in your book i see you you talk about the idea of invisible people and how we overlook the poor and the homeless and it's made me realize that so many of us are just completely unaware of the problems around us and i want to ask you why do you think we as a society tend to avoid acknowledging their existence oh yeah that's a it's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> I think there, there, there are so many things that kind of make up this inattentional blindness that you are referring to. One is, you know, when I say the word homeless, if you're listening to this, what automatically comes to mind, right? Uh, you start to think about people who may be uh, criminal or people who may be lazy or have some type of moral issue or addicted to drugs or s- substance abuse or uh, mental health conditions, right? But if you have all of those things come up, we then have to unpack that and ask, well, why do you think that? You know, who told you that? Where did that information come from? Whose knowledge is it? Whose narrative does it belong to, right? Who, who, who owns that narrative? And most times when we talk about narratives that persist about people who are impoverished and people experiencing homelessness, they are controlled by people who have never been it, right? Um, I think one of the things that everybody has seen, even going through the pandemic and COVID-19, 
is that at any given moment, it could happen to any one of us, right? COVID-19 has shown people that they could have a very secure job one moment making, you know, six figures or uh, very comfortable salaries and then literally be furloughed and have to, you know, wrestle with uh, governmental employees to try to get unemployment, right? There are people right now who have been laid off that have lost their homes. There are over 9 million people right now just because of the residue from 2020 are three months or more late on their rent or their mortgage Mm -hmm. payments, right? Uh, Statistics are even showing that, you know, uh, this year and beyond by 2023, that homelessness within itself will increase by 41% just based upon what we've gone through during the pandemic. So all of the narratives that have persisted about people who are impoverished, they have been false because just because you're experiencing homelessness doesn't mean that you're addicted to a drug or that you have a mental health issue. Some people have lost jobs. Some people got ill, right? We're in COVID-19. Some people Mm -hmm. lost loved ones. We have family members right now, our nieces and nephews lost their father. Entire uh, income wiped out of the household. He was 38 years old because of COVID, right? You know, you think about the number of people who are fleeing domestic violence or, you know, became severely ill and they can no longer work or, you know, some sudden event happened in their lives where they didn't have the the safety net of people in their community to kind of help them through or weather the storms. And so I think one of the, the issues of how we have made people experiencing homelessness invisible has been largely based on how we viewed them. And if we could reimagine how we view people, uh, then I think that we would have more empathy and compassion given the fact that we realize that, but for the grace of God, there go I. Absolutely. My gosh, listening to you, you're such a kindred spirit with another guest we had a few months back, Terrence, named Alan Graham out of Austin, Texas. I don't know if you've ever heard of Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Oh, yeah. I know Alan. Yeah. Wow. We had him on the show as well. And and my gosh, you guys are such kindred spirits and so passionate about the same cause. It's been really interesting hearing both of your different perspectives, but in so many ways, exactly the same story. A thing that you said in a recent speech or an interview, you were talking about the pandemic and you said something that slayed me. You said that people experiencing homelessness, they've always been dealing with social distancing long before the pandemic. That's That's been their world already before the pandemic. And Alan tells a story that also I think gives a lot of perspective regarding whether anyone ever chooses to be homeless. He says no 12-year-old boy or girl has ever lied in bed looking up at the stars and dreaming one day of becoming a crack addict or unemployed person sleeping on the streets without family Nobody dreams of that. And he told us that their experience was that, as you've uh, mentioned earlier, that drugs or alcohol, such a misconception, uh, were not the primary reasons that people sometimes end up on the street. He said they found that a catastrophic loss of a family member was in many cases the predominant factor. Has that been your experience as well? 
Yeah, always. I think one of the the number one things that people without an address lack is community. That reminds me of a story we had engaged this guy named Ronald. We befriended him, gave him space to live and have a stable place and discovered that he had been out of touch with his family for 30 years. I mean, can you imagine not knowing where your mom is or if she's alive or not, or your father, if he's alive or not, or where your siblings are, your last memory is when you were a lot younger, right? And so we had surrounded him with a community and it was this community member within the community shout out to Elizabeth that used her uh, knack for researching and the internet to start to figure out where uh, she could locate his family. And so long story short, Ronald was able to reunite with his family because this, this volunteer used a laptop to, to make these connections. But I share that story because, you know, you think about the number of people who are out there that have lost touch with their family members we meet a lot of people who have lost parents or siblings and they have absolutely uh, no one, you know, community is everything. Everything happens in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, you get, you get a chance to network for jobs or you get a chance to learn different skills or things from people who you're connected with. I mean, if you look at the close five people in your life, there's a lot of similarities or even things that spill over out of the context of their lives into your life, right? You just, when you think about it, if something major was to happen in your life, who could you call? Now imagine not being without an address, without a phone, sometimes without an identification card, without a birth certificate, social security card. You can't even prove that you are you. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and you have absolutely no one to reach out to. Um, it becomes very damaging when you don't have that communal support. So I I definitely agree with what Alan raised. And you had mentioned recently also that you told the story about a gentleman that walked into your office and he had just fear in his eyes about COVID. Yeah, yeah. And that inspired you to take some steps. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. So just over a year ago, Dimitri walked into the center and we were still getting updates from our, on our cell phone devices about, you know, COVID-19. This was like a thing that was spreading around. People were trying to figure out what is it? Sure. Does it kill me? Et cetera. Uh, the CDC was doing the best that they could to kind of prepare people for it and communicating to the general public that they need to wash their hands and make sure they were sanitized to to protect themselves against the spread and contraction of this virus. And so we saw all sorts of things, you know, libraries started to close down, businesses started to close down, Uh, people were scrambling around the uh, stores and fighting over toilet paper and paper towels. And it was just a a ruckus, as my grandmother would say. And here it is, you know, cut to Dimitri and he's standing in our uh, center and he says, I'm afraid I'm going to die because I have nowhere to wash my hands. I mean, can you imagine Mm -hmm. the, the contrast of people 
fighting over toilet paper, but yet there's people without an address afraid for their life because they have nowhere to wash their hands. I mean, I wept, um, but I also started to think, you know, about what could we do? Um, Our organization has in the past been known for using RV units uh, similar to Allen to provide uh, temporary housing uh, to help people transition to a more stable place. And as a part of these RVs, what some people may use for luxury, you have portable options on, on them or that comes with them. Portable cooking station, portable potties, portable sinks or hand washing stations. And so my idea immediately was to reimagine or repurpose how those portable wash stations were used. And I had the idea that I, I, I think I asked my wife or I told my team and I was like, we should just start putting like sinks in the street <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. And they were, they were like, yeah, yeah. Like, let's, let's do it. And I researched, uh, found an RV part place, got some parts, assembled a sink. My friend Lecrae donated the first uh, 15 of those sinks. Uh, we started with 15 and grew to 50 in the city of Atlanta. And uh, after NFL Foundation, Porsche, AtV, Brani, Coca-Cola, Southwest Airlines, I mean, a number of companies, if I'm leaving you out, please forgive me. No, that's um, awesome. Got involved got involved and um, yeah, now we have portable hand washing stations in uh, 57 cities around wow. the country and two additional, two additional countries. Just basically giving people the ability to wash their hands where they did not have running water. You know, I took a, we dropped off another sink in another location under a bridge here in the city of Atlanta. And Pete told me last time he washed his hands was behind the building out of a spigot because somebody was nice that day and it had been two weeks, you know? Another guy, Ronald, told me that he was just excited he could wash his hands before he eats. I mean, you think about that, uh, that resonates in another way. What you are giving these people is dignity. That's just common dignity that every human should have. The ability to wash your hands, just a simple thing like that. And that is, uh, I believe you call it the Love Sinks In campaign, which is just incredible. So creative name, uh, awesome. But more importantly, it's just an incredible thing that's making it, it's so much more than, than preventing disease. It's the humanity of it, of giving dignity back to people to allow them to enjoy a meal after washing their hands. And, and, I, and I think you're referring to a story that I, that I also heard, I think it was on another podcast that you did, that a bunch of food was being delivered, and, but you had the, you know, the, one of your sinks off to the side and everybody went scrambling over to the food you know, to get in line. And a, and a gentleman said to you, uh-uh, I want to wash my hands first before I have a meal. And that's just really, that's a powerful statement right there for sure. Yeah, it's so important. I've, I've said this quote probably the last three times I've had the opportunity to speak, but it's become one of my favorite. It goes that everybody is deserving of dignity, no matter how damaged the shell that carries it, which is very profound. 
mm-hmm. um, that worth and value is inherent. It's, it's intrinsic. And the thing that, you know, I struggle with sometimes, uh, even during this type of uh, work, is that we base worth on all of the extrinsic things, you know, the car you drive, where you, what do you get your coffee? Where did you go to school? What type of degree you have? What do you do for a living? You know, what kind of glasses are those, etc. And we base, we, we, we use all of these extrinsics, uh, in, extrinsic metrics to measure worth. So if you don't have those things, my question is rhetorical, are you le- of lesser value? Are you not worth it? You know, and I think that we need to uh, reimagine how we uh, measure worth and we need to start within. And if we do that, it doesn't matter if you're a CEO or you're sleeping on a bench, you're still worthy. It doesn't matter if you're a person that is cleaning the building that other people work in, you're still worthy. It doesn't matter if you live in a mansion or a motel, you're still worthy. And that is the message. Beautifully said, and you segued me perfectly into my next question on the topic of dignity. Can you tell us about the Dignity Museum, which I understand is a traveling museum, and how did that come about? Yeah, one of the the things that kept coming up for me and our team was, what is homelessness really like? You know, people are trying to figure out you know, is it true that all people experiencing homelessness just have mental health issues? Is it true that uh, people are just addicted to drugs? You know, all of these questions kept coming up and us being an organization that is grounded in storytelling, I wanted to create a way that people could sit with their embedded knowledge or embedded ideas about people experiencing homelessness and really wrestle with them and unpack if if those things are really true. And then I started to think about, I wanted to strip the microphone away from those who hold the power or, or the narratives about people experiencing homelessness and actually put, them, put it in the hands of people who have either overcome it or who are currently going through it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a different dynamic. And obviously uh, we couldn't, you know, purchase a large facility. And I started to, to think about shipping containers uh, because there's a great metaphor in shipping containers. You know, every shipping container has a origin or a story uh, or start. Mm-hmm. Uh, every shipping container carries something of worth and value and every shipping container is transient. And it's the same thing wow. uh, that happens with homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every person has a story Every person is transient, moves around from place to place, but it does not mean that there isn't something of worth and value on the inside. And that metaphor within itself became the foundation as to how I wanted to design and create this museum. I wanted people to look at it and see something that they uh, could say and say, well, that comes from a junkyard or that that came from whatever, but the real beauty of what you're going to experience is on the inside. Right. And so we made the museum interactive where it has an app 
and technology. It has murals on the wall uh, designed by graphic artists. Uh, it's broken down into three sections, challenge stereotypes, uh, create empathy, inspire action. I mean, even within the create empathy section, we took words off of signs of people that we had encountered and built relationships with and put all these words on the wall. So you stand there and you may read something like, mom told us to wait right here. That was 10 years ago, you know, wow. or these really powerful phrases where you get a chance to sit with what your fear of someone does to them. You know, I'm afraid that somebody might fear me without knowing me today. That's a thought that's on the Shit. wall. I was an army veteran. I thought my country would care for me, you know, all types of things. And so you get a chance to listen to these stories and then, you know, you get a chance to have conversations with individuals and then even find some sense of inspiration as to what you can do and contribute to help other organizations that are either addressing these issues or how you can use your gifts and talents to actually build someone up. On that topic, like you said, there, you know, there's army veterans, there's people that uh, lost family members, and I can't even imagine the thought of, uh, wow, I, these people walking by are afraid of me. What do I need to do to not make them afraid? What, what advice can you give, Terrence, to us and our listeners on what we can say or do when we're walking down the street and we come across a person experiencing homelessness? Notice them make eye contact, ask them their name, ask them how they're doing. Man, I have so many stories, uh, but I think of uh, my friend Tyrus, who, I don't know if you were able to see that video, but he was talking about how it does damage to his self-esteem and his sense of self-worth when people may see him and intentionally look the other way when he hears the doors lock, That's so sad. Uh, when he notices people at stoplights that will, you know, act like they're doing something else. He says that that crushes me. He says, I'm somebody, I'm Tyrus. I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a father. And he goes through all these things and he says, I am somebody, I, I'm worthy of being seen, right? Mm -hmm. He says, some of my circumstances have led me to this place, but what he's trying to communicate is that you can't look at where I am and measure my worth and value based upon what you see currently. He says, I'm more than where I am. Uh, or I think about uh, the time I was at a, a stop sign, we were in the heart of the city and it was a guy over the way. I think I was talking to my wife, my son who was like four years old at that time started crying and we turned around we were like what's going on he pointed to the guy he says that i'm, I'm sad because that guy doesn't have a home and he looks like he doesn't have any friends me as a parent because of the work that i do instead of locking the doors giving them a lesson about those are bad people i say do you want to say something to him buddy he, uh, you know, wiped his face and he says, yeah, yeah. So I called the guy over to the car, which is untraditional. I rolled down my window, um, which is untraditional. And then I said, my son wants mm -hmm. to say something to you. And the guy kind of starts to grin. I said, uh, just walk around the car, which is untraditional. I rolled my son's window down halfway 
And uh, my son stood up and he says, I just want to say I'm your friend because I love uh, uh, the poor, poor people. And the guy just like starts to, I mean, it was the cutest thing. The guy starts laughing. He's like, man, thank you. So I needed that encouragement. I mean, uh, obviously I told him who I was and then we got him some, uh, some contacts or whatever, but it was just that moment mm. of call, call somebody by their name, listen to someone's story, affirm, affirm their yes. existence. That's the most powerful thing that you can do. And even becoming knowledgeable with what's in your area. Sometimes there is an information gap where the person mm -hmm. doesn't know where they can go and sleep at night or they don't know where they can go for medical help or whatever it is that they need. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could just become resourceful, right? And say, hey, I know this place because I've done research and I wanted to be prepared to offer this type of information for you if you may lack it. I mean, those are two powerful, quick things that you could do. Yeah. Great advice. Wow. I'm so inspired to just, yeah, take steps to, to interact and, like you said, just acknowledge their existence for sure. Yeah, which really is just the bare minimum. Like that's so simple and easy to do. But for whatever reason, because of fear or just misunderstanding, so many of us tend to not do that. And that story is so sweet. I'm sure that made that man's day. I love that so much. Before we move on to anything else, I did want to get back to your foundation, Love Beyond Walls. And if you could share more about what you guys do, I understand that there's different services that you guys offer, like counseling services and haircuts, I believe. Yeah, we temporarily house people. Uh, we help people to reunite with their family members. We mobilize doctors and nurses to check vital signs and uh, get people connected to health providers. We have showers. We have places and spaces where people can come and do uh, their homework. Like some of my friends have even been in school, right, doing an online educational program and have to go to the library. And sometimes the library's computers are taken up. So how do you do your homework and, and stuff like that? And so access to technology, access to community, you know, food co-ops, uh, mentorship. I mean, it's, it's countless things that we have done to, all of these things are just vehicles to do what I like to say, be in proximity with people whom God loves because community is the thing that is, is really needed when you're out there in total isolation. It reminds me of the story with Mark. Uh, we just did a, a docu-series that we're about to release. It's a four-part series. He's in the last one. It's called Find Life Change. One day, Mark was digging in a dumpster behind our building. And Ronald comes up and he says, hey, man, it's this guy. He's digging in a trash can. I go out and discovered that he was looking for lunch in a dumpster. Instead of calling the police, I engaged him in the conversation. I wanted to know him, to know where he had come from, what, what his story was, et cetera. I learned all that and found out that he had a business degree. He had, was once in corporate America. He had been living on the streets for several years. He said he became really depressed because of his childhood trauma. He was an orphan. He bounced around from place to place, was physically abused, emotionally abused never knew any of his family members. 
doesn't know where he comes from, et cetera. And I remember walking him up to the front of the building. We had a community of people wow. in, in the, in the space. And I said, Hey, this, this is uh, Mark. I introduced him to everybody and everybody was just like, Hey, Mark, you know, and I was like, mm -hmm. he's going to be one of our friends. And everybody just like celebrated him. It shocked him. Right. <laughs> Cause he goes from like, nobody's talking to him. And then all of a sudden he's in this community. And everybody's like, you know, asking him <laughs> questions, wanting to give him hugs and all this stuff. He was like, who are oh, these weird? I love that. You know, but long story <laughs> short, Mark ends up uh, living on our property. It took us eight months to get his birth certificate. We had to hire our attorney uh, to solicit his information, that whole back and forth process, eight months to get ID. Why? Because you need ID to get ID. But if you don't have ID, how can you prove who you are, right? Um, we finally get his ID. Then we, I launched this campaign. I said, man, I'm, I'm going to try to get you a, a job. I wear a sandwich board that says hire Mark. We're literally downtown in the city walking around. I'm passing out his resumes and I have on his sandwich board. Uh, we did it six days straight. It was picked up. The story spread. He had over five, I think like 500 inquiries. Where is Mark? Really? You know, all of the skills and stuff he had, yeah. Uh, within the six on the sixth day, he got a job at a suit store. Two weeks after that, he was hired back into corporate America. Mark today is a community member, still a friend. I just spoke with him, but he is doing well. The thing that he needed was community. Was community. All he needed was somebody to see him. Wow. And I, I share a story often because it encapsulates everything that you all are talking about. It sure does. What a, what a beautiful story. And just one small instance of you caring, acknowledging his existence. Wow. Powerful stuff. You are a joy and a, just a, just a light in the world, Terrence. Thank you for all you do. Uh, we, one last question we like to ask all of our guests and you've already given great advice on how we can acknowledge someone that is without a home and without community ways that we can reach out and touch them and make a difference in their lives. What overall advice can you give to us and our listeners of things that we can be doing in our daily lives to help make the world a better place? So I've been given this non-traditional answer for a while. And basically I tell people to create margin in their lives, basically to look at the context of their lives and really challenge themselves to remove the things that will have either no eternal value or help them leave any type of lasting uh, legacy or uh, impact on this world. Most times people's schedules are so bu busy it's not that they don't have the willingness or the desire to want to help. They just don't have the availability, right? And so that's why you see people who may do things a couple times a year, maybe all of the holidays and service hasn't become like a, a rhythm. It's only an event, mm -hmm. right? I did this event. I went and helped for this couple times and it's, what I'm advocating for is to create the type of margin in your life where service can become a lifestyle that you reorient your, the way that you see the world 
to know that no matter where you are, if you're serving in an organization or if you're at work or even in the context of your own home and your community, that you have made the type of margin in your life that whenever any opportunities presents themselves, your willingness will also match your availability. And that is where you have impact. I can't tell you what cause is on your heart. I can't tell you what, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning and upsets you. The thing that makes you mad if you use that as an acronym is the thing that you're called to make a difference in, make a difference. If it makes you mad, make a difference. And you can't make a difference if you don't have the margin to. Also, the other thing too is know that no matter what contribution that you contribute, it's still needed. If you were to look at the grander narrative as a puzzle on the front of the puzzle box is an image or a picture. We all want that picture to be a beautiful world. Some people have a piece to the puzzle and they, what they like to do is sit on that piece, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they don't think they compare their piece to other pieces, other pieces uh, that other people may hold and say, oh, my piece is so small. No, your piece is important. <laughs> Because connected mm-hmm. with the, the uh, contributions of others truly makes a difference. And that is the picture and image that we all wish to see, but you can't withhold it. Mm-hmm. You know, Offer your talent, offer your mm-hmm. skill set in whatever way you can, connect it with other people's gifts, talents, and abilities, and you're sure to make uh, some type of social change. Oh, I love that. And that just goes back to what you've been saying about the value of community. We all just can play a small part in a bigger picture. That's what we need to make a difference. So I really love what you just said. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And before we go, tell us about your new book coming out May 18th, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Yeah. So basically it underscores the point that I just made. We are bombarded with injustices all from the palm of our hands uh, because many people have a smartphone. But what if what do, what do you do with that? Many people are wanting to make a difference, but they don't think that they can because whenever we encounter something that is uh, wrong with our world, it feels overwhelming. And what I'm advocating is that you find ways to connect with community and offer up your skill sets to make a difference. Uh, You find your role in this much larger story connected to other people, uh, and you're able to make a difference with this collective impact, right? As opposed to feeling overwhelmed by the weight of injustice. You know, the, the mountain of homelessness will feel like a mountain if you try to tackle it alone, or sex trafficking if you try to go at it alone, or whatever cause. It's always going to feel overwhelming, but connected with a community of people, maybe you can find smart, small parts of the issue that you can address directly, like and make a real time impact. Even if you can't see this, this massive result right away, you still can have tangible impact with connecting with your community and uh, offering whatever you can right now. Is that book available via pre-order now or? Yeah, you can pre-order it now on Amazon. It actually launches on May 18th of this year. So pre-orders are open. I hope you will pre-order. 
Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. And it's When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together, of course, by Terrence Lester. And to learn more information about Love Beyond Walls, go to lovebeyondwalls.org to make donations and to volunteer and learn more about the incredible work that uh, you all are doing there. Terrence, thank you so, so much. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. It was, a, it was a pleasure. And I, I love what you all are doing. I see it, father and daughter. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, you know thank what? you. She's the brains behind the operation. Trust me on this one. So, uh, yeah, it has been an incredible journey. We're 21 episodes in, I think. And, uh, it's been a fun project. Yeah, sure. it's just been an amazing, amazing project. Shining a light on people like you, Terrence, has just been such a, such a joy and such an inspiration. And gosh, you just, you know, hit us right here in the heart. And my hope is that, you know, so many of our listeners will listen to this as well and be inspired by your words and the good work that you're doing and we'll keep the fight on. So thank you so, so much. Awesome. Thank you all. Special thanks to our guest, Terrence Lester. If you'd like to learn more about Love Beyond Walls or make a donation, you can visit lovebeyondwalls.org. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tampoco. Our music was written and performed by Nadia Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a comment. If you have a suggestion for a guest or have suggestions on how we can improve our show, please send us an email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world.